You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. If you would open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, I'll be reading verses 28 through 44. Luke 19, 28 through 44. Uh, And if you are able, please stand. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. And glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Easter is going to be celebrated next weekend in many towns and communities with Easter parades, egg hunts, and probably even some colorful marshmallow peeps. But the reality is that for most Americans, the celebration of Easter will be void of any kind of spiritual or religious significance. It'll be an occasion to get together with family, to make colored eggs, uh, to get together as a community, but nothing more than that. Well, to properly celebrate the resurrection or Easter Sunday, we need to go back in the calendar and and place ourselves as a spectator in the crowds that gathered the week before the resurrection. In other words, that group of people who made up the scene that we often call and refer to as Palm Sunday. Because if we can better understand that event, we will have better insight into what we should be celebrating next Sunday. Uh, So turn with me to Luke chapter 19, 
And immediately we're reminded of the significance of what we refer to as Palm Sunday because it's recorded in all four Gospels. And so if you want a, a full picture of every aspect, you know, take a couple minutes and read how Matthew's perspective on it, Mark's and John's, and then ultimately as we look at Luke here. Because I'd like to say that if you were a spectator in this scene, what you're going to see is a parade of paradoxes. And in many ways, it's not even something we know the disciples fully grasped what was going on at that moment. And we can speculate many in the crowds did not fully grasp the significance of this event. Uh, paradox, as you well know, is where you, you look at something that appears to be either absurd or self-contradictory until you examine it more closely and see that it is true or well-founded. And so I want us to imagine as spectators in this scene, if you were looking at this event, you would see three paradoxes. In other words, something that looks like it can't possibly be this. But in reality, it is. Notice verse 28, Luke writing as both a historian, wanting to get all the facts correct, as well as a theologian, simply begins in verse 28 and says, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Here's the first paradox I want to put before you. Jesus Christ is in total control. Jesus Christ is in total control. Now, keep that in the back of your mind as you kind of think about how unpredictable crowds can be, how this would look from the perspective of other individuals related to the events going on. It would look, I am certain, as the exact opposite. Keep in mind before this, here Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. He's in a sense, not tailing behind his disciples. He is leading the way. They're not dragging him, but he is leading them. And Luke's very careful to sort of give us a series of details that build this anticipation. We, we know where he's heading, and, and we're going to walk every step with him. But sort of think of it from the perspective of, again, if, if Jesus had a PR person, what would this look like? Sometimes Jesus is saying, don't go to the city. Don't do that. I just did a miracle. Don't tell anyone. And now all of a sudden he's saying, yep, it's on. You know what? We're going to head into the city and it's going to be public. Because a parade is never a private occasion. It's a public event. So in looking at this paradox, uh, let me read for you something Luke says in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, you find these words in verses 51 through 53. At the as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? You just got to love James and John. Uh, but Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. 
Notice how Luke is very careful to say this whole progression we see taking place here, the direction of Christ's ministry in that final year, leading down to the final weeks and then week, is he has his face resolutely set to Jerusalem. This is why he came into the world to die, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so even this earlier scene where you have the, the Samaritans not letting him pass through their, their village or town is not going to slow down or impede Christ. Notice Jesus doesn't do what we might do in a situation like this where we have something uncomfortable on the horizon. He doesn't look at this situation with the Samaritans and say, well, I, I guess God's telling me this must be his will not to, not to go to Jerusalem. You know, here's a roadblock. They won't let us pass. No, this is just continued confirmation. Resolutely sets himself to head to Jerusalem. So we have this paradox of, is Jesus really in control of everything that's happening here? Knowing what we do about where the end of the week is going to lie? Well, return to Luke chapter 19. And notice in verses 29 through 31, Jesus gives some very explicit directions to two of his disciples. And you all know the story well, but it's good for us to, again, go over details that we tend in our familiarity to pass right over. So you see in verse 29, it says, As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. That very strategic place is mentioned here. Again, Luke building our anticipation. He's going to Jerusalem, but, but we're right there with him. We're, we're watching this unfold. Bethphage and Bethany are two smaller towns on the outskirts of Jerusalem, just a few miles from the city itself. Uh, Bethany is where it, you have Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. That's their hometown. Uh, so knowing that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, that there is a lot of support here for, for Jesus being the Savior? Could this be the time he's going to announce publicly he's, he's king and absurd Roman authority? So there's a very strong support system, you could say, even though maybe lacking true clarity of what Jesus' mission here is, that is going to come out of Bethany and Bethphage. But then you have reference to the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, a very unique place in prophetic history. Uh, this is where Jesus will ascend into heaven. It's where, according to the prophet Zechariah, Jesus is going to return to the Mount of Olives. So does Jesus Christ know all this? Is this once again evidence that he is in complete control of these steps that he is taking? Because then you go on in those verses and notice the, the directions that are given, the commands to these two. First, you need to go to the village ahead of us and there you're going to find a colt. You're going to find this, this young donkey. Matthew tells us it will be uh, both a, a female donkey and its younger baby. You're to take both with you. But Luke just focuses on the one that will probably be ridden in this. So the direction is you're to go. You're going to find this cult, and it's going to be a cult that has been never ridden before. 
And this kind of ties into, if it's never ridden before, it has been used for nothing else, this is a very unique purpose that Christ is going to use this animal for. But then notice as well, it goes on in the directions. When, when you get there, if someone asks you what you're doing, you're to tell them the Lord needs it. Now, we don't want to read too much into this. The word Lord there can simply mean the, the, a master or owner, uh, one who has authority. Uh, so it is interesting to see in these words, if Jesus is stating or implying as Savior and God, I, I own everything. So even that cult is, is mine. But notice how specific these directions are. Well, then you move on to what happens in verses 32 through 34. Why are these two verses in our text? I mean, why are we told, well, they, they go and do this, and they found it, just as he said. They're untying it. The owner says exactly what Jesus said. Why are you untying the colt? And they simply say, the Lord needs it, and the end of story. Well, those details provide confirmation and assurance once again, Jesus is in complete control of the events that are taking place there. Because I don't believe, and I know sometimes you'll see a comment, well, maybe this was prearranged. Jesus knew the guy and, you know, talked about this. But I think the way Luke paints this would be, this is not prearranged. This is evidence of Christ's omniscience. To remind us in the midst of this scene, Jesus has not lost control. And we know full well from the other gospel accounts, it would have been the desire of the religious authorities to either execute Christ before Passover or after it's over. And so as we see these details, even the very timing of how the rest of the week will unfold is clearly evidence it wasn't their will in the sense of they orchestrated this and it went down just like they wanted. It was the will of the Father. And it was in complete control as Jesus obeyed the Father that every detail of this was as it has been planned from eternity past. Now, as a spectator, would it have looked that way? I don't think so. I think they anticipated at least with these different crowds. And, and keep in mind, there's crowds coming from different directions. So if you have a crowd coming out of Bethany and Bethphage, they would have been more likely Galileans who tended to be a little more supportive and have seen more of the miracles of Christ. We know that there's also crowds in Jerusalem, the city already, who when they hear that Jesus is coming to the city, they begin to come out of the city to greet him. They would have been more Judean crowds, not necessarily as supportive overall or having witnessed his many miracles. So when sometimes you've heard people say, well, gee, these crowds are so finicky because by the end of the week, they, they changed their mind, they flip-flop, that's probably not an accurate assessment that you're talking about two different groups of crowds there. Josephus, a Jewish historian, estimates that the city of Jerusalem during Passover had anywhere from one and a half to three million people. 
Like it was jam packed. Everybody was looking. It's, it's like Hanover during Dartmouth graduation. You, you can't find a place to stay. You're staying in outside communities because just there's no vacancies. That's what Jerusalem was like during Passover. This fact that Jesus is in complete control is, is not just vitally testified to here, but if you recall in Peter's sermon, when he's delivering his sermon that follows the, he, the tales of Pentecost, the Spirit coming down, so it's 50 days after these events here, after Passover. Notice what, what Peter says, if you turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Peter gives us a commentary on this paradox because I think for many you're still looking at this saying, is this how it should have gone down? So in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, as Peter is preaching to primarily a Jewish audience in Jerusalem, the very same city where Christ is headed, in his sermon, he says at verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as, yourself, as yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Peter balances skillfully their personal responsibility and accountability, but at the same time says, who was in control of all this? It wasn't Pilate, it wasn't Herod, it clearly wasn't the Pharisees, it was God himself, predetermined according to God's perfect plan. So as we go return to Luke chapter 19, Standing in the crowds, we have seen this, this paradox. Jesus Christ is in total control. But now we move to a second paradox that makes its way through this scene, and that is Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. And yet, oddly enough, we stop and think, there's King Herod, there's Pilate, another official, there's the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sanhedrin, but none of those are referred to here in the sense of they have a position of authority and power over everything. And yet Jesus Christ, as we'll see, is the King of Kings. And so notice in verses 34 through 35, the actions of the disciples and this growing crowd that's beginning to gather. In verse 34, uh, 35, or excuse me, verse 34, they replied, the Lord needs it. They are obedient. They go and do the task. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. So you have this placing, as we're all familiar with and probably have a visual in our minds, of them taking their outer garments. So we're not talking about very wealthy people here, average commoners, taking their, their coats, which we can assume are not brand new, uh, putting them on the donkey, putting them down almost as a, a kind of red carpet <coughs> treatment in this 
processional. Now we know from John's account that even the disciples did not fully grasp the significance of what was happening here until after the resurrection and such. But if Jesus is in total control, then Jesus is fully aware of the message that he desires to have this have, that he is the king of kings. And I think often we have read this text, and I'm sure I've done this too, where we say, well, you know, this is very unusual. He's coming in on a donkey. You know, it, it, that's the, the significance of this. He's not coming in on a war horse. But I think there's a greater significance to this. It was not unusual to, to have a donkey, a mule, bring a royal person into a town or community. In fact, you have a precedent for this. You have a reference to Solomon, where Solomon will ride David's mule into Gihon, where he will be anointed king. Then you have after him, you have a king, Jehu, who's king of Israel. He will come riding on a mule. So it's not odd that you'd have a king come. But what is unique is this is a comment on the character and work of this king who will come. In other words, Matthew does make a point of connecting this particular scene and tells us this is to fulfill what Zechariah said. Now, Luke doesn't tell us that, but we can just read Matthew's parallel account and say, Here, here's the reason behind this. So Jesus was testifying in a very public way now, the time has come. I'm, I'm entering this city officially for this last time where he will go in and out during the week and the nights to stay outside the city. But I'm entering it in a very public way to say everyone needs to know that I am the King of Kings. Now, clearly, their understanding of what kingship would bring was very different than the kingship Jesus was ushering in, the kingdom he was ushering in. But notice it is not unparalleled. And in fact, did not the scriptures command that Israel's kings were never to rely on war horses and chariots, but upon God. So here, in a sense, you have the servant of God coming in, marking his humble character, but also the proclamation. He is the ultimate servant of Yahweh, the one dependent on Yahweh. But then you add to that the, the shouts of the crowd, which again, crowds are very unpredictable. And I think we can acknowledge there are people probably caught up in the enthusiasm of this event. In fact, for, for many in Israel, the, there was always an anticipation that when the Messiah comes, he'll come and he'll announce it during Passover. You know, when the, when the city is full, when religious fervor and, and Israelite nationalism is at its peak, that that's when it's going to happen. But yet notice the shouts of the crowd, even without them realizing it, testify to Jesus being king of kings. And so you come to the familiar words there in verse 38, 
Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That first part of that where you read of blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord is straight out of Psalm 118. Now to the spectators and the Jewish participants there, they were very well acquainted with Psalm 118. This, this is a psalm that, in fact, the king of Israel would, would lead the people in as they entered Jerusalem and as the faithful followed the king up to the temple and prepared to render their worship to God. They would sing Psalm 118. So what a, a scene that Jesus Christ is presenting that who now is worthy of all worship? Whether you're in Jerusalem, whether you're in heaven, on earth, or below the earth, as the Apostle John will say in Revelation, that Jesus is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. What, what a picture to us of a complete reversal of what maybe many are thinking and anticipating will happen for simply the reality that he's ushering in a kingdom that not only Pilate didn't understand what he meant when he said, I'm a king, but many of those present at this point did not understand what he really was going to do. But of course, in a scene like this, with all the excitement, you have some sharp criticism. And you can kind of picture this criticism being said loud enough for Jesus to hear it, but not necessarily wanting everyone to hear this. Because the Pharisees realize this is a, a delicate situation here. All the crowds are, are excited about this moment. But notice what they say in verses 39 through 40. The Pharisees, some of them in the crowd, said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Correct them. Judge them. What they're doing, in a sense, the Pharisees are saying, is not right. Uh, why don't we just call it for what it is? It's blasphemy. You're announcing yourself as a king. You're not a king. You're not God. So correct them. And Jesus's reply is short and to the point. In other words, if I silence them, even creation will cry out and worship me. Isn't it interesting when you think of what happened at the cross? You almost have a picture of the reversal of creation. There's an earthquake. The, the earth itself revolts against this death. That you have darkness. How did you have everything created? In the beginning there was what? Nothing. And then God spoke. So Jesus puts them rightfully so in their place. But a question I hadn't really thought of before that much is, how come Rome didn't do anything to sort of squelch this at this point? I mean, we, we can be well aware that Rome watched Jerusalem closely, that just like any major city today, if there's going to be some big event going on in that city, there's extra law enforcement there just in case. So Rome was not naive that this is Passover. This is a time when you get some strong religious fervor going on. And I wonder if the reason Rome at this point did nothing is for two, th two reasons. 
One, maybe it's a religious festival. So Rome was not pro-scripture or pro-this. They, they allowed people to exercise their religious options as long as it didn't interfere with stability. And that's partly it. I think the other may have been simply Rome looked at this with contempt. In other words, this was laughable, I think, to the Roman soldiers. Compare it to their processions where a king comes in on a chariot and behind him is all those people that they have conquered. And there's, there's music, there's, there's dress, there's colors. In contrast, you have a guy here on a mule. It's not even new clothing that's being thrown down. It's, it's old stuff. I mean, I think from a Roman perspective, this was laughable. Oh yeah, let's, let's welcome the Jewish king. We don't need to stop this. Let's just watch it. it. It's a joke. And yet, as we're learning, this was the second paradox. Jesus is the king of kings. But then we finally come to Luke's last part of this record, which is unique to the Gospel of Luke in verses 41 through 44. And Luke takes us now as they are approaching this route, and they're still not in the city of Jerusalem, but the city of Jerusalem would, would break out into open view at this point on the Mount of Olives. You have an elevated position. Suddenly there's this clearing. Jesus sees the city. And we're told in verse 41 that he wept over it. The paradox here is the one who at this point looks like is the victim and is going to be judged by everyone else is actually Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead. He is the great judge. He is the one who have ultimate say. And Luke uses a very strong word when he refers here to the compassion of Christ. When he says he wept, you wanna think sobbing, wailing, tears running down your face, your nose running, it's a picture of someone who is in deep distress. It isn't just that he like teared up. It isn't just that he kind of had the sniffles and you know, I'll be okay, just give me a minute. That he wailed. And we're told the reason he wails is because he also is a just judge. That they have no excuse for not recognizing his visitation among them, his coming to them, the promised Messiah. Again, the, the word to uh, coming to you or visitation, as some translations put it, it refers to a close examination and looking at. In other words, he walked among them. They, they saw him. They, many of them, talked to him. They had conversations with him. And Jesus says, you stand guilty because it was so obvious that I am in total control. It was so obvious that I am God, that I am king of kings. And it was so obvious that I came to offer salvation, but I also spoke to you about judgment. You know, we might find ourselves at times saying, well, I have a hard time relating to these spectators. 
you know, we're, we're long removed from this scene. But I wonder if one of the things we have in common is have we seen God work in our lives? Have we seen him visit us and, and deal with us in different situations? And yet we haven't responded in the kind of obedience and worship that we should. I think that's where we start to realize we've been there. We've done that. He has made himself known, not just in salvation and Christ, but how about when we've dealt with maybe physical difficulties, when we've dealt with spiritual issues in our life, or maybe there's been a momentary sort of, I get it, you're Christ, you're my savior, I should listen to you, but then quickly that fades and there isn't that worship and that obedience that does belong to him and as we're reminded, will be given to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we can see ourselves in this account. It is so easy to forget that we do the same thing. We often miss on a daily basis recognizing you for who you truly are. And so I pray by your grace this passage would stay before us throughout the week that we would constantly be mindful that you visit us every day through your Holy Spirit who lives in us through the word of God that we read which is God breathed through our interaction with other believers who speak God's word to us and so we plead for your grace that you are a compassionate God but you are also a just judge. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.